When we stand at the threshold of a new year, it's encouraging to know that God is always the same. We can trust him for all of our tomorrows. If we focus on how quickly the world seems to be going the wrong direction, it's easy for us to wonder about uh, how our nation is going to survive and consequently how other nations in the world that are dependent on our nation, how they will survive as well. We might be tempted to lose hope. It's always good to go to the scriptures and find out uh, a biblical truth that you can grasp onto. One that I think would be good for us this year is Psalm 118, verse 8. It says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Don't be surprised when people disappoint you. God never will. Keep your eyes on him. So I started thinking about what scriptures might encourage us to be faithful in Christ in this coming year. The Lord seemed to impress on me two different kinds of obstacles that we face every day. Uh, both are mentioned in one chapter in the Bible. And so if you'll open your Bible to James chapter 1, we'll see both of these in the first part of that chapter. There are trials and temptations. Say, I don't want to hear about this. Well, we all face trials that can overwhelm us, and we need to learn to trust God in those times of trouble. And we also face temptations to do wrong, to do evil. And we need to have victory over those temptations in order to shine brightly in a dark world that, that desperately needs to see who Christ is. So we need to find insight into how to deal with these trials and temptations. And we do here in James chapter 1. This morning's message, God's grace is sufficient for every trial. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 12. And then I trust you'll be able to be back again this evening when we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. And the title, God's faithfulness is sufficient for every temptation. So is grace sufficient for every trial this morning? How do you react to trials? I've seen some Christians that I thought were strong, that were godly, that uh, would be able to face any difficulties that might come into their lives. But when something came, I saw them and watched as I, I was surprised to see them fall apart. We talked to a missionary wife years ago. And she said that she had some things happen in her life that she had never gotten past. And she was still bitter toward God. She, she would say, where was God when I needed him? Why did he let this happen to me? It's often easy to look at your circumstances and complain and to feel sorry for yourself and even perhaps blame God. But that's not the way we are supposed to respond to a God who never makes mistakes, and that's the kind of God we have. He's always perfect. He always does what's right. There are a lot of people in the Bible that are good examples of those who have chosen not to complain about what God brings into their lives, their trials. You're familiar, familiar with Job. In chapter 1 and verse 3, we find that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a house full of servants. He was called the greatest of all men of the east. And in verse 14, a messenger came to his door, and he said that the Sabians had killed his servants and stolen his cattle and donkeys. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came in and said, fire came down from heaven and and all of his servants that were tending the sheep and all of the sheep were dead. 
While he was speaking, messenger number three came in and said the Chaldeans killed the servants and stole the camels. And while he was speaking, messenger four came in and said your, your family, your sons and daughters were all in the house and they were, they were gathered together and a, a wind came up and the walls came down and they were, they were all killed. Seven sons, three daughters. Job's wife gave him the advice in chapter 2 and verse 9, curse God and die. Job, later in chapter 13 and verse 15, said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the right response for anyone who faces difficulties. No matter how tragic those circumstances are that you may face. Joseph was thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, faced false accusations, endured his prison. And he looked back and told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. David faced his giants, Daniel his lions. The Hebrew children were thrown into the furnace. The Apostle Paul was very familiar with trials. He was stoned at Lystra. He fought with beasts at Ephesus. He was beaten. Five times he suffered 39 lashes from the Jews, 195 stripes. Three times he was beaten with rods. And he wrote about a thorn in the flesh that he, in three different seasons of his life, asked God to remove and God said, no, instead of removing the trial, I've decided to give you more grace. And that's perhaps what he will do in your life. You've prayed. The trial is still there. The difficulty still looms. But he will fill you with his grace. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Peter wrote to the early church in 60 AD. That was three and a half years before Nero would burn Rome and blame all the Christians, and thereby many became martyrs. They were persecuted through that. But as they opened the letter that Peter wrote to them in 1 Peter 4.12, they read these words, again, three and a half years before Nero would, would persecute them. He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial, fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Many of you have faced very difficult trials recently. And we have no guarantee that things are going to get better next year. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to get worse. But there are those verses that are recorded in God's word to give us consolation, Romans 8:28, and we know that all things work together for good to them who are the called, to them who love God and to them that are called according to his purpose. As we come here to James chapter 1, James gives us three reasons as to why we face trials. I think it will be encouraging for us to, to think of this as we embark on a new year. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, the first reason, trials will make you grow. You say, I don't want to grow anymore. <laughs> trials will make you grow. James writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. 
but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Notice he says, when ye fall into diverse temptation, not if you fall. <laughs> you can expect to fall into trials. And the word fall here just means to encounter them. What are these diverse temptations? The word diverse means that they're, they're trials that vary in character or in nature. Trials come in a lot of different sizes and a lot of different colors. They come in a variety of ways. Some give you early warning signs that something is going to take place, a problem is going to happen, but others seem to come out of nowhere. The text calls them temptations, but we need to identify these in the early part of the chapter as, as trials. In James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, and again, he's speaking of a trial here, something that you're told to endure, not to escape or run from, which would, we would think of a temptation to sin, but to endure temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So a trial is something that comes into our life, and when we respond to that difficulty correctly by, as it says here, counting it all joy, enduring it with patience, then we'll receive this, this promise, the crown of life. God may have allowed or sent that trial for you to rely on him, to learn to trust him, it might be a trial that you have just somehow brought on yourself. But when you respond correctly, it will be to your benefit and it will be to God's glory. In the very next verse, after verse 12, there's a different aspect of this same word, temptation. Now he refers to it as a temptation to sin in verses 13 and following. We'll look at that tonight. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of or by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So when a trial comes into your life, you're to patiently endure that trial, and the end result is a crown of life. But a temptation is something that comes into your life with the intent of leading you to do something that's evil, that's sinful. That kind of temptation is never from God. Two different uh, aspects, one a trial, one a temptation to do wrong, that are described here, but the word that's used for both of them is the same. The verb is perazo, and the, the noun is uh, perasmas. So it's the same word used for the trial or the temptation, but we know by the context and the, and the one that we're to endure and the other we're to flee that these are different, different aspects of that word. So how are we to respond to trials? Count it, all joy. The word count, uh, consider it, judge it, uh, discern that this thing is coming into your life and you can count it joy. The word doesn't mean that you're thrilled with every trial. It's a little strange to have somebody, boy, I just got through that one. I'm really looking forward to the next one. I, I just love trials. It's not, it's not the joy that he's talking about. It means 
that you can have a calm delight in whatever you face. What's the reason we can have that kind of joy when we face trials? Verse 3, the only way we can have that calm delight is that because we know something. Knowing this, you have an understanding, that word knowledge there is an understanding based on past experiences. And so you know that that, that knowledge, that promise of God, that way that he worked in the past will, will carry you through the difficulty. And not only that, but it will give you a reason to rejoice in every trial. What's the end of that response of considering it all joy? Verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If you have patience... Remaining steadfast in adversity, that's what patience means, remaining steadfast under any kind of adversity that comes into your life. That patience will accomplish three things. A lot of them are very close in meaning. But notice, it will make you perfect. The word perfect is teleos. You look through a telescope and you see out to the end, the end result. Patience will accomplish its end. It will allow you to, through your, your trial, to achieve that goal, that desired end that God has for you. There's a loving God who sends that trial into your life. And you may find it hard to rejoice in the trial, but you can always rejoice in God. And after all, he's the one who controls every trial. Nothing you face in life didn't, first of all, pass his, his divine inspection as Satan, when he went before the Lord and said, Have you, and the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? It has to pass God's permission for that trial to come into your life. And like the irritating grain of sand in an oyster, God forms pearls of great value through that irritation, through that trial. It'll make you perfect. Second, it'll make you entire. It's another word. Complete in every detail. Perfectly healthy, sound in your life. Sometimes you meet people and they've never faced any difficulties. And you find that there's something missing in their life. They lack a depth of character that only comes from leaning hard on the Lord through great trials. It will make you entire. In other words, the, the similar, it will make you content, lacking nothing. There will be nothing missing in your life. You'll have all you need. Mrs. Frances Havergale wrote the words to the hymn, Like a River Glorious. And she said, Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him wholly true. So when trials come in like a flood, know that God wants you through patient endurance to be brought to a perfect end. He wants to extend your faith so that you'll come to a full maturity. The right response to trials will complete you. Those hardships will make your entire life uh, content. Your, your life will demonstrate that calm assurance that God is in control and he does all things well. In 1982, two Russian cosmonauts returned to the Earth after 211 days in space. They were healthy when they came back, but developed some severe physical problems. 
They suffered from dizziness, heart palpitations, high pulse rates. They, they could, couldn't walk for a week, even after 30 days. They were suffering from atrophied muscles and weak hearts. What had happened was at zero gravity, the muscles of the body began to waste away because there, there, there was no resistance. Five years later, after 326 days in orbit, a cosmonaut returned to the Earth and he was perfectly fine. The Soviets had seen what had caused the problem and now they prescribed a vigorous exercise program. They also invented this suit that was uh, laced with elastic that gave resistance to every move that the cosmonaut would make. It forced them to exert strength. We often want life to be easier, but God knows we do better with resistance. The trials you face will make you depend on God. They'll make you learn to trust. Trials help you grow. Secondly, trials cause you to pray. We come to verses 5 through 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Every believer has the privilege of prayer and the responsibility to pray. Notice, if any of you, the word any, this privilege to pray is open to anyone who lacks wisdom, if any of you. And then he says, let him. Out of the any, he says him, a specific individual. Pray for wisdom because it's your individual responsibility to do so. You must ask. And then God is the one who gives that wisdom at your request. In the second half of verse 5. He gives to all, without any reservations, liberally. Not holding back any good thing. You notice the words here, any and all. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. So the specific person has that privilege to pray, and then God treats us all with his liberal generosity and answers. He gives liberally. He gives without abrading. That is, without reproach or any preconceived negativity. The word is used, uh, it means to revile, to cast in one's teeth, to rebuke, or to censure. It's used of the mocking thief who looked at Christ on the cross and said, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. That's the idea behind this word upbraiding. When, when you come to God asking for wisdom, you, you're facing some difficult trial in your life, God doesn't look down and say, oh, you again? <laughs> I, you're always coming to me for this. He doesn't cast it back at you. He wants you to come. God is the one who gives this wisdom at our request. And then there's a condition to having our prayers answered. We'll see an exhortation, an illustration, and a conclusion in these verses 6 through 8. The exhortation, what is it? Don't doubt or be double-minded. 
nothing wavering. The, the, the word wavering is uh, diacrino. It, it's, it's not hesitating in your judgment. You weigh everything out in your mind and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then you say, you come back to it later, revisit it, and say, oh, no, that, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. Okay, nothing wavering. The verb is in the middle voice. It carries the idea of disputing with oneself. Isn't this, this is the same word that Paul used to describe Abraham's faith in Romans 4.20. It says he staggered not, and it's the word stagger, this, this nothing wavering. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. In other words, he had a firm faith in what God had promised. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. The illustration now are the waves of the sea. I don't know how many times you've gone to the ocean and perhaps a great lake and seen some on a stormy day, the waves driven. The word driven is that horizontal motion and then the uh, tossed is the vertical motion. What, a, what an illustration of how most of us pray. We ask with such ambiguity. We never have any assurance that God really answered the prayer because we didn't word the prayer the way he could answer. Pray for wisdom. It should be specific. It should sound something like this. Lord, I need wisdom to know what to do about this job opportunity. I need your guidance because this decision, it's going to have an impact on my family. There are a lot of ramifications down the road that will affect our lives. Lord, please give me wisdom to make the right choice. That's a specific prayer. And when you pray like that, something will happen a little bit later. You get the job, you're in the job, and all of a sudden something doesn't work well. And you say, but I know God put me here. He gave me this job. I prayed for, for wisdom. He gave it to me. And it will give you this, this confidence when you face other trials. The conclusion. That man who vacillates in his prayers can't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now notice, it doesn't say that God cannot answer or will not answer. It has to do with his confidence because he, he prayed with ambiguity. He doesn't have the confidence. He's been weighing these things out in his mind. He doesn't believe that God can and will answer prayer. And so it says, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He had... No faith in God's power, God's ability to give him wisdom. He doubted. He didn't have the assurance that, he would, that God would do what he was asking. And that instability is going to be obvious even through every area of his life. Unstable in all his ways. Why are so many believers today vacillating in, in their, their knowledge of scripture and their, their knowledge of what God wants them to do in life? Perhaps it's because they pray without specificity, ambiguous praying. Let's go to God and ask him what's on our heart. Ask him for wisdom. Here's the promise. He'll give it. Trials, and that's the context of the, of the passage here, these, these trials that come into our lives often cause us to get serious in our prayers. Trials make you grow. Trials will force you to get serious in prayers. Third, trials help you to look at life correctly, verses 9 through 12. 
I've been at the bedside of many folks who are dying, who have trusted Christ and have given their testimony of salvation. And it amazes me in those conversations at the end of life how things become more important than other things. People are more important than things. They're praying for family members. They're wanting to know about people. People have eternal souls, possessions. We're just going to leave them behind on the earth. You think about the truth that Jesus taught in Matthew 6 when he said, Lay, up not for, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt or where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Trials have a way of putting things in perspective. James writes in verses 9 through 12, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. It's a message, first of all, in verse 9, to the poor, the one of low degree. What's he told to do? Let him rejoice. Let him glory or boast, because God can exalt him. When you have nothing, you're in prayer, and God answers, and you have this joy. You rejoice in that. He's content in the will of God. He's content in the provisions of God. And then a message to the rich. Let him rejoice, the glory or boast, same word, in that he has been humbled. He has no reason to be proud of himself. God is the one who deserves all the glory for what we have or what we don't have because he's in control of our lives. Wealth does not bring us any closer to God, and poverty doesn't keep us away from him. Hebert says of God, he, he is not merely concerned about the circumstances of poverty and wealth as tests of faith, but rather with the believer's response to those conditions. So in either extreme, look to God. Boast in him. Then the illustration from nature in verses, uh, second half of verse 10 and into 11 Flowers fade and die. The grace, the pleasantness of the flower's appearance, the fragrance perishes. And then he says this, So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And the conclusion, blessed, happy, joyful. We're talking about how we're so, to respond to trials in our lives. And there's that that deep-seated emotion of joy that God's in control and he can be trusted. Blessed is the person who endures temptations, trials, because when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to all them that love him. Samuel Rutherford was born in Scotland in 1600. In 1630, he had been married for five years, and his wife passed away. 
His children also died. He was removed from his position by the church, forbidden to preach, and so he spent the rest of his days writing encouraging letters, and you can find all those letters, the letters of Samuel Rutherford, encouraging those church members in their Christian walk. He wrote this, If God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then he told me that he should begin by crippling me in arm or limb and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet... How is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throwing open the shutter to let in the light of heaven. God may bring trials into your life to drive you close to him, to know better that he cares for you. So three things to do the next time you face a trial. Count it all joy. Seek God in prayer. And look at your trial in light of eternity. Let's bow our heads as we do. Let me ask you to respond to just a few questions. How many might raise their hand today and say, you know, I, I am facing a very difficult trial right now. You know, I just, just raise your hand and put it back down. You're, you're facing a trial right now. Okay. How many will say, I haven't responded correctly to my trials, but I'm going to ask the Lord to help me to stop complaining about them and start praising him. I'm going to ask him to give me wisdom. I'm going to ask him to give me joy through these trials that I face. Again, a raise of hands for that. Amen. He's in control of every trial. He wants you to see that trial of your faith produce something much more valuable than gold that perishes. Maybe you're here this morning and you can't honestly say with certainty that if you died today that you'd go to heaven. Would you say with an uplifted hand, would you pray for me? I'm not certain of my eternity. I don't know if I am saved or not, but I want you to pray for me. Anyone like that, just raise your hand real quickly and then put it down. No one's watching. Our Father in heaven, I pray that as we close this service, that your word will change us, that we would go with resolutions to be obedient to what you've told us. And I pray that as we do, the trials that we face in life will not be things that overwhelm us, but things that give us a platform to show others of your great love and your great grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.